have I missed the meeting? There's something really, really stupid happening in Auckland. This is the festival of stupid, and it involves orange cones, so it's right up my orange cone alley. There's an event on at Eden Park, rugby game tonight. I'm driving into work. There are hundreds of orange cones where previously there were car parks. They say, don't park here between 5 and 11. No stopping. That's because we have to have the orange cones there. There's an event on nearby that a lot of people want to go to and I cannot figure anything else out other than they don't want you to go. They want to keep you away. At least 500 car parks that would previously have been available, perfectly fine, don't hold up traffic, nothing. No, can't have you coming to the game. We want to keep you away. Have I missed a meeting? Is this explainable? I just don't get it. Okay. Um... No, no, we'll keep away from any spoilers during regular programming if you're interested in the WAGPI. And uh, there will, of course, be the news updates at the top of the hour. You use your common sense. It's a news station. We're going to tell you what's happening. Alrighty. Hey, tomorrow night, uh, I'll probably lose a whole lot of listeners because we are saluting a fantastic band that are just so noisy. They were frightening. Absolutely frightening, but marvellous. The Gordons, they are now bailed to space. They were so loud that um, people, I can, I did this. I listened to them outside of the venue. That was the only way you could actually hear what they were playing because they were so loud. What's the point of all this? I don't know. Uh, this is explained uh, tomorrow night after 10 o'clock. The Gordons to bail to space. Here's Grant Smithies from said program. I was looking at one of the clips a day or two ago online and um, this dude said his elder brother always had the opinion that they were a great band to hear at the Carlton when they were playing at the Gladstone. Which is a nice joke if you've ever spent much time in Christchurch because the old Gladstone car park is like 700 metres from the old Carlton car park. They're both mm. now flattened. Basically, as Bro was referring to how punishingly loud they were and sometimes the best way to hear them was to be outside and down the road. It's <laughs> <laughs> absolutely true. Uh, they're a great story. The Gordons, tomorrow night after 10 o'clock. Uh, the Gordons to Belter Space, that is. Lots of science this hour. Next up, a special scientific analysis underway on Trump's tweets. The most interesting radio show on planet Earth. The Weekend Variety Wireless on Radio Live. Rather a different science report today because this came across the desk, a little seminar that was held this week out of the Massey University Albany campus. Donald Trump's candidacy and presidency has been called disruptive and unprecedented. Part of his unique approach has been his communication style with extensive use of Twitter, aggressive insults and often muddled syntax that enables multiple interpretations. Partisan rancor in the USA has been growing for some time. This presentation is of a research project in progress. It presents an analysis of Trump's communication from multiple perspectives and explores, here's the hopeful bit, the possibility of dialogue between polarised groups. And this is a seminar from Professor Ted Zorn. Ted, thanks for being with us today. 
My pleasure, Graham. Ted, what science discipline does this sort of research fall under? Uh, communication studies. So I'm a professor of organizational communication at Massey. While political communication isn't my usual area of, of expertise, it's more business communication. This is an area that I've been very interested in, as you can tell from my accent, as an American and as an avid follower. My wife would probably say obsessive follower of, of U.S. politics. But it's communication studies. You know, I'm interested in, in the communication process and communication style and, and those sorts of things. Are you suffering? honestly, from post-Trump stress disorder? Yeah, I, I call it Trump derangement syndrome. Yeah, it, it's pretty severe. Okay. <laughs> well, it does seem like rich pickings because we haven't seen this sort of communication from a president before, the style anyway. So what is your research project? We understand that this is still in progress. So tell us what is in progress. I made the joke about the trunk derangement syndrome. I think that there's probably some truth to it, but I have a real concern about polarization. The basic focus of this study is that polarization has increased dramatically in the past 20 years in the U.S., and I think it's a very dangerously high level. But one of the things that polarization is characterized by is a deterioration of empathy. That is that if you and I are at the opposite extremes, it's very difficult for me to empathize with you, to see you as a reasonable person who just happens to have different views. Yeah. So the question that motivated me for this research is how can that be restored? So what I'm trying to do is an analysis that tries to understand alternative perspectives on, in this case, Trump's communication and look at the possibility of dialogue between people who disagree, who come from those, those polar uh, opposite perspectives. Yeah, it does seem as though it is becoming more and more intractable that one side will not, shall not, cannot empathize with the other. Yeah. That is the real dangerous thing, isn't it? It is. It's not just perception. The, the Pew Charitable Trust does a lot of research on this and, and other uh, issues in the in the U.S. If you look at the at the research that they've done on people who are engaged in politics, how people identify with political positions, you see a dramatic difference in the last 20 years in terms of the sort of median position for Democrats would be center left, and 20 years ago, median position for Republicans would be center right, and now those medians have just you know, moved way apart in turn. And so you have the, a cluster on the left and, a, and another cluster on the right and a, and a much smaller group in the middle, just the opposite of what you saw 20 years ago. I suppose a home run question might be for one on either side of this. What do you want? Let's just say for this case, someone that's in Antifa protesting against people they say are Nazis. Yeah. Um, I would just ask, what do you want? And the answer is, in order to get there, sometimes you think there could be nothing but civil war. Yeah, yeah. Well, it certainly looks that. I mean, I think that's the you know you get that sort of extreme on the on the left with the Antifa and the extreme on the right with um, the white supremacists and neo Nazis. Yeah. Yes, I, and I think so. There is a certain group of people who are looking for a fight, looking and see conflict that, that sort of armed conflict as the only solution. And, and that's what's so dangerous about polarization. I mean, if the, a democratic process depends on people believing that while we may disagree, that there are reasonable people who are on the other side who just happen to have a different set of solutions, different set of beliefs. But if we're polarized and you lack that empathy, you know, what happens is, is we demonize each other, right? I, I see you as either evil or insane or, or lacking intelligence, and, and therefore there's very little hope for reaching any kind of a solution or, you know, accepting a, a solution even if it's not the one that I would have supported. 
from one of Bill Maher's shows where Chris Matthews, a very famous CNN anchor, let's see each other's point of views. Here he is. I think another part of it is, uh, you know, when you piss on somebody for about 50 years, they get the message. And referring to the white working class as deplorables, and Obama, my hero, saying things like they cling to their guns and their religion. Condescension works. And when you hear there's a party on, but you haven't been invited to it for about 50 years, you get the message you're not wanted. We bit. can disagree, but yeah, I think but it's a powerful fact yeah. that they said, okay, we've got the minorities on our side, we've got the rich people on our side, the sophisticated Hollywood people in our crowd. Hillary so was why referring, would we want to ignore the rest of Hillary them? Hillary was referring to the racism as being you're deplorable. Gonna, you're pick a point. And it was one of those moments, though, that she finally just said what was okay, in her well, mind. Yeah, maybe in her mind. And it was great got to say it. We, we never quote the second half of her sentence, which I think was the wrong part. She called them deplorables, and she said they were irredeemable. That part isn't true. No, you can never have the attitude that people oh, are irredeemable. That's where the disconnect happened. There's a reason why all those white working class okay. people voted for a bad candidate. Don't dump on them. Love them a little, okay. because that's how you might get them back. So, but you're not going to get them back by dumping on them more. And that was along with Michael Moore, who's obviously way far left of Chris Matthews. But I thought that was an interesting, nice bit of empathy. Stop pissing on people. <laughs> uh, well, that's right. And there's, a, I mean, one of the things that, that really Im impressed me, which sort of makes the same argument as Chris Matthews, that there's a wonderful book by a sociologist named Arlie Hochschild called Strangers in Their Own Land. She started doing the research, um, sort of living in Louisiana before the Trump phenomenon really started to come into play, but it overlapped with that, in other words, towards the end of her stay there. She sort of came to this very similar conclusion to Chris Matthews, is that there are a group of people, working class, white Christians, is mainly the group that she was looking at. They felt like they'd worked hard, played by the rules, that worked to get ahead, but they weren't getting ahead. You know, seeing their lives economically stagnant, they felt culturally challenged, you know, with, mm. with gay marriage and a number of other cultural issues that they would disagree with. And a lot of threat by immigration, feeling like they're being demographically replaced or, you know, no longer in a, a majority situation. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think trying to understand that point of view is, is really critical for ever being able to reach across. Chris Matthews talked about Hillary Clinton's comment about the basket of deplorables, which was politically, it was a horrible thing for her to say and, mm. and really did huge damage to her. Um, but I th think it is the kind of thinking that, um, uh, you know, really does alienate and, and sort of make that, that divide between the polls even more pronounced. It makes me wonder how much Trump is the problem. He's the easy go-to person because he's, to me, he's a pretty odious character. <laughs> but, but was he a symptom more than a cause? You feel like one of those people you've just described, or Chris Matthews just described, they go into the voting booth and for once they can say, stuff you. Yeah, and I think many people for voting for Trump was sort of a middle finger at political establishment. Is Trump the symptom or a cause? I think it's probably both. You know, many people would have said that Trump is sort of a, I suppose, one in a in a line of anti-establishment, in many ways sort of non-rational, I don't mean irrational, but, but you know, focusing on really emotional appeals mm. like Sarah Palin, for example, and to some degree, and to a lesser degree, George W. Bush. Yeah. He's not completely out of the blue, right? I mean, it, this comes in the context of this polarization happening over a long period of time. It was huge polarization in the uh, after the Iraq war started with, with George W. Bush, and there was even greater polarization uh, in Obama's era. And, and now, as I said, I think it's reached sort of a fever pitch in the Trump era, but it's it's not something that just happened in a vacuum. It, it happened as a result of a whole set of social dynamics over a long period of time.
I actually take my hat off to Barack Obama. I think it was the day or day or two after the election of Trump. He was very calm. No, 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 no. Don't boo, don't yell. In 10 days, the world will witness a hallmark of our democracy. No, 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 no. The peaceful transfer of power from one freely elected president to the next. This again is a very rare thing to spot today. Yeah, it is. You know, I think many people who were and, and still are very sort of anti-Trump were, were hoping that that uh, that sort of presidential trying to bring people together is something that he would take on. And it, obviously, it's been sort of war with the media and and with others from from day one with the protest. You know, immediately after his uh, his yeah. election and. Now, the study, you're going to get into the communication language of Trump. He's fresh in as much as he can bypass the traditional media and probably engage many more people just by using Twitter. Is this a symptom of Twitter being there or Trump being there? Probably both. I think he he not only distrusts the media, he finds it to his political advantage to put the media as one of the, the enemies, the enemies of the state, as, as, as he has, has said, the enemy of the people. But Twitter's not the only way that he's going around the media. His rallies are the, are the other way, right? I mean, he, yeah. he's, he, he's sort of still in campaign mode going around the country doing these, these rallies, which is, again, unprecedented. So, you know, while Obama used Twitter, it was a much more measured, and I'm sure everything that he put out was um, vetted by his, his communication manager, whereas, you know, Trump, in, in fact, the analysis that I've seen is that you can actually pick out the tweets that Trump himself puts out versus the ones uh, from his staff. He actually uses a different phone and, you know, he uses an Android and the staff uses an iPhone so that you can actually pick out the different tweets that he puts out. So, you know, he's going around the, the media in part because, in large part, because he doesn't trust the media and also because, you know, it's politically convenient for him to put the media up as the bogeyman is putting out the fake news and, and the other things that he says. Do you think he has any reason to distrust them? Sure. You, you know, he, he has been at war with the media. Was it their fault? Is it his fault? Is it a, a bad combination? It's very difficult, I think, from the day after his inauguration when uh, his communication director comes out and says, we had the, the largest crowd, period, and um, which is a, an easily disprovable lie and one of many easily disprovable lies that have come on. And yet the to blame the, the media for challenging that easily disprovable lie. Yeah. I put a lot of the blame on Trump and the administration, but does he have reason to distrust the media? Yes, because at this point there is a war between the, the media and, and Trump. That crowd thing, that really felt like trying to argue with a seven-year-old. Yeah. Um, I didn't really know what, what diff it would make. You know, okay, off you go. Yeah. yeah. Being big and being the best is, is very important to uh, Mr. Trump. <laughs> is anyone surprised, though? Because yeah. we know where he comes from. He's a very wealthy yeah. reality TV star with some history in fake wrestling. You know, we, we, we knew what we were getting when he stepped up, and which is why so many people thought, well, it's just not possible. When he put his head in the ring for the Republican primaries, most people at that point said, well, he'll never get through that. And then when he got through that, well, he'll never beat Hillary Clinton. And, mm. you know, here we are at the end. Okay. As a communication scientist, what do you make of the way he communicates? His syntax is alluded to in the blurb. 
there are a number of, I think, really interesting features about his communication. So I would say, first of all, it's a it's, it's a very grandiose style. There is a lot of boastfulness in, in his communication. It's a very informal style. You compare it, Obama could be relaxed. George W. Bush could, could be relaxed in, in their communication. But when I say that Trump's style is informal, it is very improvisational. You know, he will go off on a tangent in some cases that don't seem to have anything to do with where the sentence started or where the you know where his thought started. You've heard the Sam Harris quote. I thought it was quite prescient, actually. A nice little description. It is. It is a nice description. When I hear Trump speak, I hear someone very often getting prompted by his own misstatements to complete a thought in a way that he clearly didn't intend to, which is to say that the thing he's now saying doesn't reflect anything he believed or even thought about before. But he's saying it now because the last phrase he spoke just launched him there. Right? It's, it's as though he's speaking in verse and he's forced again and again to complete the rhyme. It's like he says, there was once a man from Nantucket and he's got to finish the thought. Right? So he says, who always carried a bucket. But he didn't know he was going to say bucket. And now he's stuck with it. And now he'll go to the mat defending Bucket. And it's the rhyme of ignorance and error and bombast. Just listen to the man speak. It's unbelievable. I think it very sums up very nicely that sort of improvisational, very loose uh, kind of fragmented style that you, that you see with Trump. Mm. That does, in some way, sweep a little of the assumption of malice away and replace it with, he just doesn't know how to think or talk. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, in this this research that I'm doing, as I said, I'm trying to look at the at his communication style from multiple perspectives, and, and so I sort of look at it. And I, this is a technique that I've used in in other research as well. So look at it from three perspectives: a functional, and that is basically it works. So why does it work? Why do when people say he's effective as a communicator, what do they mean by that? Right. Uh, and then there's a sort of idealistic perspective, and that would be what his supporters say. Um, and then there's a, a critical perspective, and that would be his detractors. But with this very loose, improvisational, limited vocabulary, lots of repetition, fragmented, there are people who relate to that. I mean, that, that see that he is speaking to them, not in an elite um, you know, Obama got really criticized for being aloof and elite, yep. right? that he, he talked like a professor. Trump, on the other hand, doesn't do that. He, he says what he thinks, and, pe- and many people love that, this sort of informal, somebody that you're having a beer with but happens to be quite a character, sort of a style that, that really does appeal to people. That informal style is, is part of his character. It's, very, it's a very provocative style, very combative, non-PC, and again, that is something – that works for a number of people. I mean, obviously, many people are offended by what seems like racism, which seems like xenophobia. There's a large number of people who cringe at what they see as uh, politically correct speech and the restrictions that politically correct speech puts on them. And for them, Trump's thumbing his uh, nose at that politically correct set of attitudes uh, is something that very much appeals to him. And it goes back to you know, what we were talking about earlier with the, this, this white Christian working class who feel like they can't even talk the way that, that they were comfortable talking before. And so they feel like they're being judged harshly just for being themselves. You know, another quality of Trump's communication, that it is highly ambiguous. And this comes from it being informal, from limited vocabulary and repetitious. And you, you're often not quite sure what he says. I mean, one of the things that I've often thought in terms of, you know, all these questions about uh, whether Trump is 
putting himself in legal jeopardy by some of the things he says. Well, that may be true, but because he is often so ambiguous about what he says, it's not quite clear. You can often take what he says in, in multiple ways yeah. uh, because of that lack of clarity. Yeah, that, yeah. That, in, that informality in, in his talk, and that he does sort of talk from the hip, and it's, not, it's often not clear. Whereas you know, someone like Obama was very measured in, in what he said, thoughtful and, and measured and, and used a much more formal style. And again, that put many people off. But it tended to be more precise, and you knew what he meant, and there weren't these questions, you know, did he really say that? Did he really mean that? Something I've noticed with the ambiguity, it allows people to take the position that they prefer and use exactly the same quote from opposite points of view. <laughs> yeah. One of the most interesting things to me in, in watching Trump speak, and, and as well as his, his tweets, and then uh, his administration trying to explain those the next day. Oh, yeah, you know, yeah. It, Hearing press secretaries at those sort of meetings, I thought dancing bears were illegal. <laughs> Can we figure out what he actually does think because of the ambiguity of what he says? I think the way you figure that out is through the, the patterns. Uh, while there's always room for interpretation, um, but I think what you see are repeated patterns, and, and that's where the, the clarity starts to come through. All right. Uh, you do talk about the possibility of improving the possibilities for dialogue. Yeah. Again, comes from a, some of the research that I've done in the past on dialogue. And we use that term dialogue in lots of different ways. We use it in everyday talk to mean two-way communication, right, that lets you and I have a, have a dialogue about this. Mm. But really what I'm referring to is uh, there's a um, set of communication practices that are often quite structured, getting people together who have uh, – different beliefs um, who are groups in, in conflict, and getting those people together to explore each other's point of view. So it's often often this kind of structured dialogue is, you know, you have a facilitator who, who tries to set up a, a set the scene, tries to create a non-threatening communication cli uh, climate, get people to explore each other's differences without trying to resolve them. So it's not conflict management. It's saying, you disagree with each other, but let's try to understand. Yeah. suspend judgment, really try to learn from the differences. And one of the things that you see in that kind of a process in, in multiple settings is that people do change their views through that. The research that we did and with, when I was at Waikato University a few years back, we did some studies using dialogue around controversial science, gene splicing and cloning and, and those sorts of things, which was very much in the news. People in the room with the scientists who did that work structured this dialogue and then also in, in alternative situations, just had those people in the room, on, you know, lay people, non-scientists non in the room, just talking about this kind of controversial science. And what you saw is when you have a group of people just talking amongst themselves without the scientists there, their attitudes tended to become more anti the science and anti the scientists. They were more negative towards the science and more negative towards the scientists. You get them together with the scientists and have that kind of a conversation, just the opposite happens. Their attitudes become more positive towards the science and more positive towards the scientists. They have more empathy, which is sort of my, my key theme here. And the same thing happens with the scientists, by the way. It's not just the, the, the non-scientists. You would think scientists who study this stuff all the time they would never change. That's the sort of thing that I'm thinking about here with the polarization is that polarization results in a deterioration or a disabling of empathy and dialogue and, the kind, and this kind of multiple perspectives analysis that I'm doing is an attempt to enable empathy, to enable people to see that there are others who have a, a different point of view 
And it doesn't mean that they're evil, crazy, or unintelligent. It's just that from their own perspective, they, they have a hold a different set of views. Now, what I've just talked about is a very formal process, but it does happen spontaneously as, as well. There's a wonderful clip that, that you could find, a video clip. You Google Black Lives Matter speaks at Trump rally in September last year, about a year ago. Mm-hmm. There were a group of Black Lives Matter protesters at a Trump rally. They went there to protest, and so they're chanting, they're shouting, and then they're getting shouted back at. And this amazing thing happens is that at first the guy who's running the rally at the at the front is saying, you know, don't pay any attention to those people, you know, basically ignore them. And then he invites them up on stage. And they come up on stage and this uh, and the leader of the of that Black Lives Matter group says, Okay, I've got two minutes to talk to, with you. These are all Trump supporters out in the audience. He sort of explains his point of view and gets some catcalls from the audience, you know, some shouting back, you know, all lives matter, not just black lives matter. And, but he responds to those things and responds in, a, in an empathic way by saying, yes, all lives do matter. But let me explain why we say black lives matter. You know, what you see in that is that I'm sure there's still lots of negativity among some people, but there's a real coming together, a moment where people who are very different from each other. They had the bikers for Trump and the Black Lives Matter guys standing there, and the the Black Lives Matter leader was holding the child of the bikers for Trump, and they were taking pictures together and that sort of thing. So it is possible for that spontaneous dialogue to happen. But what I'm interested in is can we structure processes in which get people who are polarized into a communication process where they can start to see each other as humans who have different points of view and not just as these crazy, unintelligent people on the other side who couldn't possibly be somebody that we could work with. I hope you understand it when I say I hope it doesn't depend on it because (laughs) um, America does need to heal a bit. Um, Although I watched a documentary about 1968 America this week, and it's a long way from that, isn't it? Yeah. I'm old enough to remember 1968, and... We tend to think things are horrible now, but God, I remember as a, as a kid just being scared in 1968, assassinations of Robert Kennedy and uh, Martin Luther King and the riots were happening and so on. So Vietnam, the Cold War, mm-hmm. the threat of exactly. it. Exactly. As I said, I do have a bit of the Trump derangement syndrome, but also as someone who cares about the political process and, and trying to create a place where democracy can work, I think this sort of you know looking for ways to close that polarization gap is quite important. Good for you, Professor Ted Zorn, Albany Massey Campus. Thank you. Thank you. You're tuned in to the Weekend Variety Wireless. Astronomy Today with Dr. Grant Christie. Grant Christie, how's your astronomy been? Oh, it's not too bad. A few nasty showers, a bit of bad weather, but mm. a few clear nights. Not bad. Okay, quite big news this week. A bit of talk and some descriptions of the Earth's magnetic field. It does flip every now and again. We know that through the history of the rock formations and things like the Atlantic Trench and just even the volcanoes on Hawaii. You right. know, uh, the, any any place where there's been episodic lava flows on Earth, if you go down through those lava flows that have all been maybe happening millions of years apart and sample the rocks, then the little magnetic particles in that lava got locked in with the orientation depending on whether it was North Pole was up or down. Mm. Geologists have known this for a long time. The Earth's magnetic field flips every seven or eight hundred thousand years as a sort of a typical sort of Mm -hmm. flip 
It yeah. would never have worried anything. It's, it's never before. affected humans because it's never happened when right. human beings have really been fully human. It's, it's during those times, as the video shows, is that you know, well, the magnetic field protects us from the the cosmos basically, and also yep. solar radiation, um, solar wind, all those sort of things. But if you if the solar if the magnetic field just dies away and then starts up again in the other direction, then there's a period where the Earth gets irradiated. And that idea of the sort of radiation sort of coming down and causing a whole lot of genetic damage could possibly be related to, you know, sort of the accelerating evolution and changes mm -hmm. and killing off species. Well, the, an interesting, uh, thing the magnetic poles, um, they are shifting around, aren't they? They do. I mean, the magnetic pole moves around. The geographic poles stay pretty much fixed. There's a little bit of wobble there. The Earth mm. isn't perfectly symmetrical. But the magnetic poles wander all around. And that's why, you know, you keep having to adjust your magnetic variation if you're using a compass. We use GPS today, but uh, that used to be an issue if you were you know, navigating using a compass. You had mm. to allow for that. Okay, and there's a description of what might happen. On the Weekend Variety Wireless webpage, there's a, a, a link to this, and there are some weird things w regarding our magnetic poles as well, like there's that South Atlantic anomaly where there's a, a lump of weird magnetism. And That's right. Is this all part of because we're going to be shifting Well, you poles? know, the interior of the Earth is still a mystery, uh, and, uh, you know, they're, they're theorising. That's what the video is showing. They're theorising what the interior could be like and what could happen. Uh, basically, there's no way of predicting it. It's, it's uh, the process of the magnetic flip occurring is basically a chaotic process, and it can't really be predicted in advance. Um, and there's a lot of sort of similar things that occur in physics that are like that as so well. So it's not going to flip at 6:29 no, on a certain day. Yeah, I'm not quite sure the actual. I, I don't know if they actually really know. I mean, it does occur fairly quickly because they don't get many layers and rocks where the magnetic field is not there at all. Mm. In other words, all the little magnetic particles in that rock layer would be just chaotically all over the place because it couldn't tell which way was up. Mm. But uh, they're usually up one way or the other. Um, but it, it was interesting in the thing. I didn't realise too that there could be sort of multiple magnets effectively embedded in the interior of the Earth. And it's a, a, the magnetic field generated by a dynamo. So you've got a, a nickel-iron core spinning around at a different speed to the ma magma on the or the sort of basically the outer part of the Earth. So they have two different speeds, and it's the ratio of those speeds that determine how chaotic it's going to be. Mm -hmm. It's basically a a process of chaos. Uh, are we all going to go to hell in a handbasket? Are there conspiracy theorists out there? That's well, uh, well, we've we've never seen it happen. Um, we know what happens if you don't have a magnetic field. Mars effectively doesn't have a magnetic field, and of course the solar mm. wind stripped away its atmosphere. So mm -hmm. if the Earth didn't have a magnetic field for a long period of time, its atmosphere would be stripped away and we'd be bombarded with a lot of cosmic radiation as well on the surface of the Earth. It would be sort of, uh, if somebody could switch off the magnetic field, we would have life on Earth would gradually get very, right. very damaged. So the question really is how long it's going to be in a state of flux when we get more radiation and bad things coming our way, not deflected. Yeah, I mean, I have to emphasise for everyone listening that we're talking about timescales of certainly in the orders of thousands of years. It's, oh. not, suddenly, it's not probably going to happen okay. next year. I mean, nobody's mm -hmm. got any way of predicting it. And how long it would take to flip over, I don't think anyone really has any particular idea about that either. We just simply know it's happened many, many times in the history of the Earth. So it's going to happen again. And it will happen again. All right. Now, known asteroids in the solar system, you can have a look at this as well.
from the web page. I suppose this does raise the question, how many do we think we're missing out? But Well, it's it's, it's, you don't know what you don't know. That's yeah, the yeah. thing. But there's, they're still finding, according to the stats, near-Earth asteroids is 18,000 currently known uh, as of the start of this year. It'll be a little bit more than that. And they're finding them at the rate of about 40 a week. So these are near-Earth asteroids. These are ones that come into the Earth's vicinity. Um, they're not all potentially hazardous. Some of those we know would never hit the Earth from their orbits, but there's another sort of group known as the potentially hazardous ones, which are ones that can potentially at some time intersect the Earth. And so that's basically NASA's mission is to try to identify all these potentially dangerous ones, and uh, we can decide what to do about <laughs> them in the future. I mean, there's lots of ideas, yeah. uh, and everything above about a kilometre is known already, and now they're trying to push it down so we know everything bigger than 100 metres is okay. known. They haven't reached that point yet, but they're getting towards that. 100 metres would kick up some dirt. Oh, it? that would be a major impact, absolutely. I mean, it's, uh, but, you know, it's not like the one that killed the dinosaurs was about 10 kilometres. That's sort of right. an order of magnitude bigger. Yeah, Two like, orders of magnitude bigger. like a, a Mount Everest yeah, h- yeah. hitting the earth. All right, now ice confirmed on the moon's pole. Some people are rather excited about this, and I heard some things on various news bulletins that sounded like they came from 1972. This may supply moon bases with yes. all sorts of things. Well, that's right. Know, well, does it make any diff? We thought it was there. Yeah, it's been. Make... This is the first absolutely guarantee that they can guarantee that what they're seeing there is ice. In the past, they've got signals from satellites that uh-huh. uh, mapping the surface of the moon. But there were other interpretations you could have put on it, so it wasn't a, an absolute. This, this, they according to the paper that's been published in a major journal, mm-hmm. is that they they definitively know what's there. It's in the top few millimeters of the soil. The icy material occurs in craters that are near the poles, and because they're sort of side onto the sun, the sunlight never hits the bottom of those craters. So. Uh, as soon as if the sun did shine on the bottoms, of course, it would evaporate away, which is ha- what's happened on the rest of the moon. The moon right. once did have sort of every time a comet ran into the moon, it delivered a huge pile of ice onto the moon. But of course, then the sun simply evaporated it off and it went off into space. But when they these comets have hit uh, basically the polar regions, then the ice is basically being protected because it's in shadow permanently. Oh. Gosh, that would be cold, wouldn't it? Well, it's 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 actually uh, one of the coldest parts. I mean, you, you don't get any heating. You've got a vacuum, okay, so there's no mm. air on the moon, uh, and you're not getting any sunlight. So it, it is, it's basically deep space temperature. Right. Three Kelvin or something. Yeah, well, I mean, that's right. It's it's, it's one of the coldest places uh, in the universe is this, this is the floor of one of the lunar craters. Brrr. That water could be used. Uh, I mean, they are talking about the fact that if you're going to have humans go there for an extended time, set up a base, then you probably might want to be thinking about some of these places, whether you'd want to be permanently in the dark, you know, but... uh and there are craters there probably that get a little bit of sunlight into them, so you could be there, but just 10 kilometres away over the right. surface there could be some, a big patch of uh, water right. ice locked into the soil which you could go and mine and just scoop off and get your water because, you know, water's they heavy stuff to lug around in space at uh, umpteen yeah, yeah, true. megabucks per kilo. That's true. Although, didn't see them do that during the series UFO when the moon babes had purple wings. <laughs> That was a great base. Take me there at once. Okay, now, water, though. 
apparently just not uncommon. We would expect exoplanets, planets are in, in other solar systems, to be soaking wet. Yes, well, in fact, astronomers who look for planets around other stars have known for a long time there must be planets that have a very large percentage of water, basically no land at all. Full Kevin Costner. Yes, basically just you know, hundreds right. and hundreds of kilometres of liquid water on the outside, gradually getting denser and denser as you go inside the planet till the density is such that it becomes solid. Right. Kind of like ice, but of course the interior is also hot. So just, but if you take all those water molecules and crush them in down enough, it becomes more like a solid substance. So basically, what they're saying is that any sort of planet up to about one and a half times the size of the Earth would basically be sort of kind of terrestrial. But once you get up to a planet that's, say, two and a half times the size of the Earth, it's far more likely, based on the measurements they've made, to be dominated by water. In other words, 50% of the body of that planet would be water. Hmm. 50% of the body. On Earth, you know what the percentage would be of water on the mass of the Earth? I know it's kind of a thin bit. It's, at it's the a little, t- it's, it's, it's 0.02% of it? the Earth is water, mm. 0.02%. We think of the, it as a wet place, but it's actually, if you take the Earth as a big ball, yeah. the, it's only the very upper layers that have water. These bigger planets, these sort of intermediate-sized ones, not as big as Neptune, Uranus, uh, it's a type of planet we don't have in our solar system, and we call it a super-Earth. Um, they, they have a different characteristics, just because if you double the mass of the Earth, it suddenly becomes a different sort of world altogether. I see. So it's something that's twice, two and a half times the size of the Earth. The size of the Earth is about ten times more mass, so it's gravity a lot, a lot stronger. It's a different sort of thing altogether. So. Okay. So, and, uh, so they've been able to do these measurements because they've combined the old original Kepler stuff where they found lots of these possibly water worlds in the Kepler planet discovery database and now of course they've got the Gaia satellite up there that's measuring all those stars that Kepler looked at Mm. with exquisite precision and now being able to tell us exactly how bright the stars are, how big they are and all sorts of other things that now mean that they can nail down a lot of these, the 4,000 odd planets that Kepler found. So you know the error bars have come right down using the new Gaia data. We could point at ones that might be wet. Is that the so idea? they can pick them out? Yeah, yeah, that's right. So and they're they're actually surprisingly common amongst oh. planets of the uh, super Earth size. Okay, stars and what they're made of, uh, telling us a bit about the history of our galaxy. Um, seem to be two teams. Yes, well, this is all very new. It's just been published in Nature, which is a leading journal. Not the one with the naked volleyballers. No. <laughs> no, no, it's not. The standard story of the formation of this, our galaxy was that it was once a huge big pile of gas when the universe was very young and stars started to form out of that gas and so on. And initially there was a lot of star formation at the beginning and then it gradually tailed away. So the star formation rate today in the Milky Way is about a thousandth of what it was oh. at its peak earlier on. So it's, it, it, we've got a pretty busy galaxy, but it's nothing like what it was in the past. Ah. But what they've now discovered is that there were actually, you can divide the epochs up into two things. So first of all, there was some, there was initial bursts of star formation, uh, and then it all sort of gradually, it slowly petered out, reasons I won't sort of get into the fine details of. And then there was a second burst of star formation that followed on from that afterwards. Like there was a gap of about four billion years where nothing much happened. So there was a big burst initially, quite a long gap, and then stars started to form again in the Milky Way. And the sun was one of those stars that formed in the second tier of Mm -hmm. star formation. 
Um, and they see the same pattern, interestingly, in our neighbouring galaxy, Andromeda, which is a similar-sized galaxy, a little bit bigger than the Milky Way, but the same sort of process. And they see the same division into two different populations of stars, whether they formed early or whether they formed later. Uh-huh. And the astronomers can tell the age of stars by the sort of atoms that are in its atmosphere. When the universe first started to form, they only had the only atoms they had were helium and hydrogen. Right. And it wasn't until supernovas started to occur within maybe a few million years of that exploding, they made all the other heavier elements and spread them out around the galaxy. But there's other elements that are only made much later by a different type of supernova. And But astronomers can measure the number of these atoms in these gas clouds effectively and uh, tell you what process formed them. And uh, so it's actually quite an interesting um, new take on formation and evolution of galaxies. Okay. Um, and there's a lot of fine detail that we haven't got time to go into, but, I mean, basically it's, uh, it seems like an extremely interesting um, new take hmm. on the evolution of bigger galaxies. Finally, will we hear from Opportunity soon the two little rovers that did so well, Spirit the Struggler and Opportunity, the little machine that could, has been there for so long? Yeah. That's right. It's uh, when did it land? Two thousand and four or something like that. Mm. Fourteen remember. year old. Yeah. So it's been there a while. Sixty times longer than its design time. Mm. It's hibernating at the moment. Yeah. Well, it's the, there was this huge dust cloud that's still going on. A dust storm on covering the, all of Mars. It's slowly thinning out now and seems to be running out of steam. But during that time, the sky was so darkened by dust that Opportunity couldn't charge its batteries, which mm. are solar panels. And so, the panels would have been dusty as well. That's right. And so it just hunkers down and uh, goes to sleep. But there's a number of things. Um, it, it, it generates a low power fault, so it then just goes into hibernation. And, of course, if it stays in hibernation too long, then its clock loses any sense of time. Oh. So it doesn't know what date it is, and it doesn't know what the time is. So it doesn't know to be ready to receive signals from Earth. And even if it did know that, if it if its battery's been off for a long enough time, then it develops what's called an up-loss fault, which means it, it doesn't know how to talk to Earth. I know how they feel at NASA, because I get my car back from the garage, and, and the, <laughs> just all the radio stations that are programmed have just forgotten them. It's just a oh, turn, turn yeah, the radio, sta- radio on, and it just goes, hiss. Yeah, that's right. For God's sake. Same thing's happening to Opportunity. And they're they're still sending signals every day. They know where it is on Mars, so they're watching for any sort of sign of a little beep from it, and they're pinging it all the time to see if it can respond. And they're hoping within, you know, maybe a a matter of weeks they might actually get a reply. If then there's a long process to bring it back up. Basically, if it's lost its idea of time, for example, then part of the software on board, it sort of looks at when it's night and day and says, ah, well, okay, the sun's up now, and uh, now it's dark, and it it can figure out roughly a clock based on simple things like that, so it has some idea. But anyway, the engineers can bring it back up if the battery's okay. If if the battery's been discharged for too long, then, of course, like your car battery, uh, it won't ever be able to hold as much charge as it used to, Mm. and it might not survive the next winter, even if they could get it up. So there's a whole lot of questions, but, you know, a whole lot of people are sort of, rooting right. for uh, opportunity to keep going. Or wouldn't it be amazing if it just said hello? I suppose, fingers crossed, and such a lot invested in, in that, it would be like a person. Well, it's cost millions and millions, hundreds of millions more than it ever is expected to. Though. Cause yeah, because, I mean, basically, and once the public sort of attached to the, emotionally to these two little rovers, mm. uh, then the, the federal government couldn't really pull the plug on the funding, you know, because it would be like killing 
oh, one of their right, rovers. Yeah. So, right, here on the news, we're going to shoot a dog. <laughs> That's right. We're going to shoot your dog. Have you got the gun? We'll put this live to air. Probably there's some accountants in the back room just hoping that the thing just shuts the yeah. hell up and, and doesn't ping the earth again. And think about it, 14 years ago, batteries were rubbish compared to what they are oh, now. I know, I know. Hey, and I just wonder how... That's a pretty good battery for 14 years yeah, ago. Yeah. Well, the, the next rover's halfway to Mars at the moment. That's the new one that's on its way to... Um, to Mars and they're going to land it on the surface hopefully successfully and it's got a lot more capabilities uh, right. than Curiosity so right. that's going to be a fascinating time so Curiosity. latest year we'll be yeah. able to talk about watch the landing of that on Mars. That'll be groovy and um, Curiosity of course doesn't need the sunlight it's got radioactive stuff that's on it. That's right yeah. It, it can't trundle its way towards opportunity and get palliative care <laughs> in this last days. Giving it? a few bangs oh, on the chest. Bang into it and <laughs> shake some dust off. Oi! You're awake. Well, apparently, you know, well, strong winds can come up and they locally, and they can actually blow dust off. But apparently, the, the engineers say getting dust off it isn't mm. a serious issue. That, that, that's not the issue. They've just got to get the functioning and talking. Right. It happens to be in this deep mothering crater, Victoria or something, isn't it? Yeah, 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 yeah. That's right. Okay. All right, Grant. Fabulous, fascinating stuff as always. Good seeing, and I'll see you next week. Okay, thanks, Grant. Curiosity not only killed the cat, it spawned a whole radio show. Graham Hill's Weekend Variety Wireless on Radio Live. Just a reminder, there are some helpful and enlightening video links associated with the astronomy piece today with Grant Christie. Have a look at how many asteroids are out there, and then Donna Hardhat. Okay, uh, new sport and weather coming up very, very shortly, and we'll keep Sturm just about, you know, ongoing rugby results if you're interested in that. Um, we're not going to ruin your evening if you're recording it. Okay, but top of the hour, that's all very, very different. Uh, in the next hour, Max Cryer having a look at the word rugby and some big, fat, silly myths that persist about the game.